from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, murder fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I am the creator and host of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. I want to give a special thanks to some of my patrons, Kaizen, Two Emmas, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, David, John, and my girl Judy. Thank you so much. Now, this podcast is going to be a little bit different because the serial killer is still unknown. This podcast is going to be about the Cleveland Torso Killer, sometimes called the Cleveland Torso Murderer, but he was also known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. And thank you to a fellow Murder Fam member, Mike, for telling me that it's perfectly okay to break this into two parts because I really want to give this case at least a modicum of the time that it deserves. So to get into the story, I must first set the scene. The early 1930s were a very difficult time for the United States. 1929 marked the beginning of the Great Depression, which was then made worse by the 1930s Dust Bowl. The Great Depression itself originated within the United States, but it severely affected the whole world. When unemployment was nearly out of control, we were making less products and materials for export to other countries. This in turn slowed their own economies. It was quite literally the greatest and longest economic recession in modern world history. Now, people had to survive any way that they possibly could. One of the mottos of that time was, quote, use it up, wear it out, make do or do without, unquote. Now, a lot of people struggled really hard to be able to even keep their own homes and automobiles. Homemakers had to find very creative ways to stretch out how long their food lasted. Churches would organize potlucks where people could come and share food, and then that would give them some form of socialization and entertainment. Now, in some towns and cities, the local government allowed people to grow food in abandoned or vacant lots called, quote, thrift gardens, which I love the name of. There you would see office workers working the soil right alongside very experienced gardeners. But make no mistake, there were many families just on the brink of starvation. And then, if things weren't bad enough, 
people desperate to move on to areas where they could do more farming and have better living conditions was a catalyst in what was to become known as the Dust Bowl. Government programs opening up land led to a massive influx of new and inexperienced farmers that settled in the Great Plains, so kind of northwestern Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. It even kind of touched on um, southeastern Colorado and just the very tip of New Mexico. So farmers settled their land and began to plow the beautiful and flat grasslands. Some scientists then, anyway, actually believed that the people homesteading in that area and farming would somehow change the climate from the pretty dry area to perhaps a bit more lush and humid. How very wrong they were. Overtilling the land and very long periods of no rain meant the topsoil began blowing away with the very high winds that are common in the plains. And the cherry on top was that there was also, during this time, a very severe drought that also hit that area in the beginning of 1931. They would see these massive dust storms blow through, and though people would put blankets and sheets over windows, doors, nooks, and crannies, there was no keeping the sandy dirt out of nearly everything. The material would drift like snow around the houses and nearly block doorways. The air itself was almost non-breathable. Now, side note, I've personally visited this area, the Dust Bowl, and you can still tell that there was quite a bit of devastation there. It's heartbreaking and fascinating at the same time to see. And so, during all of this, in Cleveland, which was at the time the sixth largest city in the United States, nearly or roughly 50% of industrial workers were unemployed. According to teachingcleveland.org, quote, As the numbers of the jobless continued to rise, local government and private charities, the historic caretakers of the city's poor, were overwhelmed unable to provide food, clothes, or shelter for those in desperate need. Angry, frightened citizens took to the streets, challenging the police, elected officials, and employers. Unquote. But Cleveland was also known for welcoming travelers to its downtown area through the new Union train station and boasted beautiful hotels nearby. And needless to say, it was during this time that the Cleveland Torso murderer began to strike. So Kingsbury Run is an area along the east side of Cleveland and runs westward through Kinsman Avenue down to the Cuyahoga River. These areas are now known as Warrensville Heights and Maple Heights. This was then an industrial area and had some railroad traffic. There was a crude oil refinery that actually belonged to John D. Rockefeller. The Great Depression brought with it industrial collapse. Minorities and immigrants were hit the hardest. Many people were forced to take up residence in abandoned bits of land and sort of form their own separate communities known as shanty towns. 
and one of these rose up in Kingsbury Run. This would be the torso murderer's hunting grounds. So let's start with the victims. Now, while it is widely established that the murders began in September 1935, there was one in September of 1934 that is believed to also belong to the killer. Now, before I get into these descriptions, guys, this, my disclaimer, disclaimer is definitely here for a reason this time. Um, Really, the only way to describe how these people were killed is to say it how it is, and it's very gory and disturbing so just warning you ahead of time okay so a portion of a woman's lower torso hips and legs though amputated at the knees washed ashore at lake erie a young man stumbled upon the remains and contacted the authorities now the coroner found some kind of chemical preservative that had been applied to the skin that had made the skin turn red and leathery and kind of tough. A more thorough search was conducted and they were able to recover other smaller body parts, but in the end, she was never identified. They did believe her to be in her mid-30s and she was referred to as the Lady of the Lake. The first officially counted found victim was 28-year-old Edward Andresi, found in what was called the Jackass Hill area of Kingsbury Run by two boys who just happened to be playing baseball. His clothing, save his socks, had been removed and he had been decapitated and castrated. Interestingly, the body had been drained completely of blood and cleaned methodically, carefully. He did have rope burns around both of his wrists, and it was determined that his cause of death was, quite literally, his decapitation. His head was found, and he was identified by fingerprints as he had had a very minute arrest record. His body, they thought, had been there for about two days. Now, near him, they found another male body that had also been decapitated and castrated. There had been the same chemical preservative put on his body as the Lady of the Lake, also making his skin quite red and tough. While they were never able to identify the second body, though his head was found, they determined the man to most likely be in his late 30s or possibly early 40s. Authorities estimated his body having been at the site for three to four weeks. It was two teenage boys that found the two men's bodies. In January of 1936, a woman happened upon two baskets that were left beside a manufacturing building. Looking inside of the baskets, she found some packages that were nicely wrapped in newspaper. When tearing away the newspaper, it was then that she discovered that it was dismembered human remains. Roughly half of a woman's body had been neatly wrapped and placed in these baskets. After a thorough search, nearly all of the woman's parts were located and what wasn't in the baskets was found in a vacant lot. 
After a thorough search, nearly all of the woman's parts were located and what wasn't in the baskets was found in a vacant lot. Only her head was missing. Cause of death was listed as decapitation. It was also determined that the killer had allowed rigor mortis to set in before dismembering the rest of her. Her fingerprints were taken and she was luckily identified as 42-year-old Florence Polillo. She had been a waitress, she had been a barmaid, and a sex worker. So then five months later in June, two younger boys found a decapitated head that had been wrapped in dress pants near the East 55th Street Bridge. This roughly 25-year-old young man who was never identified also had been decapitated while he was still alive. The rest of his body was found near a railroad police building and he had also been drained of blood completely and washed clean. They determined he had been dead for roughly two days. The victim had not been dismembered, save his head, though he did have what was described as very distinct tattoos. Now with this head though, they made a plaster reproduction and put it on display along with the description of his various tattoos. More than 100,000 people saw the death mask, but again, he was never identified. Now, the infamous Elliot Ness, who had been hired as an alcohol tax agent in the, quote, Moonshine Mountains of Southern Ohio and Kentucky and Tennessee, was now officing out of Cleveland. The mayor promoted Elliot to the city's safety director, putting him in charge of both the fire and police departments. Now, he played a significant part in trying to modernize and make the police department more professional. He was dedicated to lowering, if not eliminating, juvenile delinquency, improving traffic safety, and he declared war on the mob. But that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast. Elliot was very much aware of these murders, but was only somewhat involved in the investigation in the beginning. But he does play an important role later, which we'll get into. So about one month after the tattooed man had been found, in July 1936, a teenage girl walking through the woods around Clinton Road and Big Creek stumbled upon the decaying, headless remains of a middle-aged male. He had been there for about two months. His head was located near kind of a stack of bloody clothes. There was enough blood that had soaked into the ground to make it pretty obvious that the man had been murdered right where his body lie and died while being decapitated. In September of 1936, a transient man walking along, getting ready to jump into a train car, happened to trip over the headless torso of a male that looked like he could have been maybe in his late 20s. The police called to the scene, searched an old swimming pool, which at this point was nothing more than a giant sewer, and he sent divers down into the water to recover the lower half of the torso, along with only sections of both legs. 
Now, this particular search became a public spectacle. There were literally hundreds of people standing around watching this search, and it was believed the killer was possibly among them. The coroner stated that this man was also murdered during his decapitation, and upon further inspection, there didn't appear to be any, quote, hesitation marks in the disarticulation of the body, unquote, which meant that the person who murdered this man was very familiar with human anatomy and was confident in his task. And get this little disturbing fact, murder fam, he was able to decapitate these people with one swing. Clean through. Yes, you heard that correctly. Now thankfully that would mean that the man had died very nearly, if not instantly. And this victim was also never identified. There were two detectives on the case full-time at this point. They went undercover in the rundown area, not only when they were on the clock, but they also went down there in their own spare time, trying desperately to find any clues or leads. They wound up interviewing over 1,500 people, and the department as a whole wound up interviewing over 5,000 people when it was all said and done. This is according to the ClevelandPoliceMuseum.org. And then as far as we know, the killer went dark over the later fall and early winter. Then in February of 1937, a man happened upon the upper half of what was later determined to be a woman's torso that had washed up on shore. They believed her to be in her mid-twenties. The torso was missing the head. The lower half of the woman's torso washed ashore about three months later near East 30th Street. Unfortunately, they were never able to identify her. What made her murder different was that her head was removed after she was already dead. That early summer, a human skull was found under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge by a teen boy. A burlap sack was laying beside the skull. Inside the sack contained the rest of the skeletal remains. Upon examination, the victim had been a black woman estimated to be around 40 years old and had been dead for roughly a year. Now, miraculously, there were some dental records that just almost completely matched the victim and they identified her as Rose Wallace, but there were no further leads or clues. And now guys, keep in mind that people were still having a hard time as this was kind of towards the end of the Great Depression. Laborers argued and fought over work and you know, of course they did. They had families to feed and take care of. So in July of 1937, there was a lot of turmoil in the area and the National Guard had to be called to help keep the peace. One of these National Guardmen was working by the West 3rd Street Bridge. He was watching a tugboat move along and noticed something in the waves it created and realized that it was in fact human remains. It took a few days for the police to locate each section of the full human body, only they never did find the head of the man believed to be in his mid-30s. It is also important to note that the killer had disemboweled his victim as well as cutting out his heart. This would indicate a change in the actions of the killer. 
He had gone from, you know, quick clean cuts, allowing the body to drain of blood and then savoring the body by washing it and making it clean again to dismemberment with anger and violence. And then after this, the killer went quiet until April of 1938. It was that April that another young worker walking to work along the river found the severed lower half of a woman's leg. A portion of one of her thighs was floating in the water as well. It wasn't for another month of searching the river that the police pulled out two sacks containing more of the woman's body, including her torso, which had been cut in half, her other thigh, and her left foot. They were never able to recover her head or the rest of her body, and it was determined that the victim did have drugs in her system. They were never able to identify this one either. So, in August of 1938, three men were going through old metal at a dump site, you know, kind of foraging and scavenging to be able to sell for money, when they found a female torso that had been wrapped up inside of a double-breasted blue blazer, which had also been wrapped up inside of an old hand-sewn quilt. Nearby, they also found a newly built box, and it contained the arms and legs and head of the female victim, carefully wrapped in brown butcher paper with rubber bands to hold it together. But the way this victim was handled was so vastly different than the first victims. According to the Cleveland Police Museum, the coroner determined that some of the body had indeed been refrigerated. While continuing to look for the rest of this woman, the police found a second victim nearby. Now, another interesting fact is that these remains, these two bodies, had been purposely placed within full view of Elliot Ness's office window. Needless to say, it did get his full attention. Since he had only been kind of peripherally involved in up to this point. If you remember, he was elbow deep in police reform and other programs, though history likes to immortalize him as being quite key in this case. But now, Elliot was furious. He wasn't happy about the amount of attention the torso killer was receiving in the press and created, for the times, a very unconventional way to try and stop the killer. He assigned the task to the editor of the Cleveland Press, who then picked eight men to go undercover that had connections or ties to the seedy underworld of the area. These men were literally on the press's payroll. Now, Elliot, along with 20 other police officers, marched right down to the Kingsbury Run shantytown in their squad cars and police vans and grabbed nearly 60 people who lived there to take back to Central Police Station for questioning. It was then said that the firemen were instructed to search the now empty structures, then burn down the ramshackle housing. Elliot then ordered the fingerprinting of every person gathered to be able to identify them should they become the next victim. He believed clearing out that area might save lives. However, other newspapers told the story as if he were punishing the poor and less fortunate, which created a lot of public outrage. 
Of course not deterred, Elliot put together a team to go door to door in a 10 square mile radius to search homes for any kinds of clues. He didn't have search warrants, so he used the excuse of looking for, quote, fire code violations. Unfortunately, this did not lead to any breaks in the case. However, what Elliot's actions did do was apparently stop the murders, or at least the ones connected to him. So guys, let's work on a profile. The Cleveland Torso Killer, aka the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, has yet to ever be definitively identified. It is widely accepted that the killer was male, and it is believed that he was most likely very large and quite strong. Consider for a moment the amount of strength and precision it would take to decapitate a person with only one swing. It was evident that he had to have some knowledge of human anatomy, and experts then surmised that he was a physician or a butcher, hunter, or some other trade where he would have developed quite a skill at cutting flesh. We also know that the killer took pride in his work, leaving bodies to be found pretty easily and packaging some up like Christmas morning presents. He wanted what was left of his prey to be found, and his prey of choice were homeless people and transients. The killer also displayed a very high level of sexual deviance due to the mutilations and castrations and had a desperately hostile antisocial side to him as evidenced by him leaving the bodies just out in the open. The killer also didn't really mess around when it came to his victims. It is not believed that he kept any of them for any length of time and nearly, if not all of them, died as a result of their beheadings. Not beatings, not shot, not stabbed. None of that. And while researching the details of this case, I failed to see any further mention of these two facts that really stuck out to me. One, this person had to be from money or have a lot of money because he could afford a refrigerator. A new fridge in 1937 was the equivalent of almost $3,000 today. There were some different kinds, gas and electric, which would still cost money either way. And remember, these were tough times for most people, but this man could afford to pay his electricity bill and had the leisure time to do the things that he did. Now, were he a butcher, that could change things a little bit. My second point is that one of the heads was wrapped in a double-breasted blue blazer. This just means that the buttons were on both sides of the jacket. These were not usually cheap either, so this leads me to believe again that he was not a poor man by any means when even doctors were getting about half the pay because the regular people couldn't afford to go to the doctor. There was only one letter that was ever received in late 1938 claiming to be the killer, and it said, quote, You can rest easy now. I have come out to sunny California for the winter, unquote. And this leads us to where we will pick up on part two. We will discuss suspects, suspicious deaths, more Elliot Ness and theories as possible expanded murder territory, and much, much more. 
but tell me so far, what do you think? Leave me a comment on the video below or DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can also email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you keep choosing me. And I just appreciate that so much. I love you guys. Get prepared for part two.